0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: Welcome to
3: The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us for another installment of this program. Appreciate it. Again, follow us at danproftshow.com on Twitter, at Dan Proft or at Dan Prof. Show, and uh, Facebook as well. I've got Facebook page up. Uh, Chalk full day of political activity, the combination of the postmortem on the Second Amendment rally in Richmond, Virginia, as well as, of course, day one of the trial of the century, The Senate impeachment trial we will get to the impeachment trial uh, actually uh, coming up next with Andy McCarthy from National Review, former federal prosecutor. But right now, I want to start with that uh, rally of twenty five thousand peaceful, law abiding gun owners in Virginia and the way that it was advertised in the run up to the rally and the disappointment. Really, it seemed from the Beltway, big government media that it was peaceful. They, They were surprised to learn, shocked to learn that law-abiding gun owners are, well, you know, law-abiding, and that this wasn't about white nationalism or any other such racially polarizing matter. It was actually a unifying event, black, white, Latino, other, coming together to petition the government for their Second Amendment rights or for the continued uh, full blossom of their Second Amendment rights. And let me give you a couple examples of this that run counter to what was being run on the cable news networks, well, at least the usual suspect cable news networks, about white nationalism and hearkening back to Charlottesville. And speaking of Charlottesville, why, actually, why don't we start there? Charlottesville. Heather Heyer's mother went on CNN and addressed the uh, rally, and uh, she had this to say about uh, gun rights.
4: I grew up around everybody owning guns. That was just a normal part of existence. And, um, yes, I'm a gun owner. I believe in common sense gun measures, definitely, um, but not extreme measures. And I think that those need to be discussed.
5: I think people need to be able to talk to their representative.
3: That's, of course, Heather Heyer, who was murdered tragically in Charlottesville. Uh, Her mom actually expressed the sort of reasonableness that you don't see expressed by that same press corps I'm describing, distinguishing between hate groups saying, you know, white nationalists, Nazis, neo-Nazis have no place at this rally. Of course they don't. And all the law abiding gun owners would tell you the same thing. Uh, But she distinguished between those marginal goofballs and the serious adults that were represented in the crowd. People that just want to, uh, again, use their First Amendment right to petition their government to protect their Second Amendment right of self-protection. And this was expressed uh, quite beautifully and thoughtfully from regular people like Mark. Mark is an African-American gentleman and a resident of Northern Virginia. He had this to say.
6: So why did you think it was important to drive those two and a half hours? One, I, I love this country. It's about the Second Amendment. It's about our ability to defend ourselves and our loved ones. It's not only a uh, constitutional constitutional right issue, but it's also a civil right issue. Hmm. Um, the governor, who's known for blackface and/or possibly having a Klan hood uh, on, uh, has the audacity on MLK Day to declare uh, executive order that would prevent people from lawfully protesting. This has been a long-standing rally where people have come and they have protested. And then, on top of that, that insult, insult to Insult the Injury, um, uh, he wanted to uh, push forth a narrative that uh, white supremacists are stirring up issues. I feel comfortable here. haven't had any issues here. I don't know what the problem is. So for me, as an African-American on MLK Day, it's critically important that we preserve the ability to to defend ourselves and our loved ones. And I will not allow anybody to push a narrative saying that there are racist people at these rallies.
3: It was interesting he brought this up on MLK Day because, of course, there was outrage on the left. How could you do this on MLK Day? Well, turns out MLK Day is the perfect day to do it. Uh, This uh, new book forthcoming from UCLA law professor Adam Winkler called Gunfight. Uh, He makes the point that in 1956, after Martin Luther King's house was bombed, King applied for a concealed carry permit in Alabama. The local police had discretion to to, uh, determine who was a suitable person to carry firearms, and so they denied King, you know, because they were bigots and because they had the power to do so. So on the one hand, uh, and by the way, uh, King was also described – by uh, Glenn Smiley, an advisor to King as uh, his home as being an arsenal. Yeah, he was under constant death threats. So he had the means of self protection and you don't need to be under constant death threats to afford yourself of the means of self protection. That's the point. But it is interesting to note who fought for right to carry laws in Alabama and everywhere else and (laughs) who's fighting against it. So it's actually the NRA, arguably on the side of people like Martin Luther King. And it's the left that likes to invoke Martin Luther King. That would be opposed to his exercise of his Second Amendment rights, even perhaps back in the day, at least many on the left, the gun banning left, the Ralph KKK Northam left. It's just uh, the, the it's just really interesting, the MLK Day uh, timing of this, and then the differing interpretations of said. By the way, just as a quick aside to the gun grabbers, the Bobby O's, the Cory Booker's, the Ralph KKK Northam's, you know, the the left has been rinsing and repeating rule of law for months and months on end when it comes to President Trump in the context of impeachment and the rule of law as it comes to. Second Amendment rights. Uh, the Supreme Court has weighed in on this. Heller V.D.C., That was the decision by the Supreme Court in 2008 that established the Second Amendment as an individual right. McDonald versus City of Chicago in 2010, that was a Supreme Court decision that established that individual right as so conveyed in Heller applied to state and local governments. So Otis McDonald, who was the plaintiff in that case, an African-American senior citizen from Chicago, who I knew before his passing, uh, wanted to protect himself. Uh that uh was what the Supreme Court said, that what we decided in Heller applies to state and localities too. You cannot subvert a federal, constitutional, God-given individual right. So where are the rule of law Democrats now? now where are even reasonable Democrats like Heather Heyer's mother says, you know, I support some common sense measures, but I'm a gun owner. Um uh, you know, there's no there's nothing wrong with being a gun owner. Uh, There's wrong with there's something wrong with hating people, but the two are not synonymous. Why can't we have that room temperature discussion? Well, there's agendas to be served. I understand. Uh, Let's go to the phone lines. Sean from Elmwood Park, Illinois. You're on the Dan Prof. show.
1: Dan, congratulations on the new show. Listen, you're concerned with the media. I'm more concerned with the lack of representative outrage. And we see this format every single time. In order to rule over somebody and to seize their rights, you have to demonize them. But we've lost the context of the argument because our representatives, as far as I'm concerned, you and I live in Illinois, and we see what the agenda can do once mounted against the citizen. They have no problem in Illinois putting up these barriers, and they refuse to recognize its failure. And I don't see Republicans in mass, and I don't mean people. We saw the people. I mean from state representatives to congressmen to senators fighting for the citizens rights as, um, as written in the constitution, as understood in the founding of our country. And my problem is we keep losing and they do this on us uh, to us with taxation. They do this to us with healthcare and now they're doing it to us with guns. Mm -hmm. And the reality is they like, to demonize people that refuse and fight the control of government. I don't see us winning, and I'm nervous about this. Well, and it's great that we had the protest,
3: but when do we win? Well, thanks for the call, Sean. I think, I think we are winning. Um, certainly the Supreme Court decisions I mentioned constitute winning protection, winning protection of our God-given Second Amendment rights, right to self-protection. Um, and the other thing, too, is you, you have to remember with politicians, you have to have the properly low expectations of recognizing that most of them of uh are not at the head of any parade or rally or protest or movement they form at the back when it's safe to join in and so uh the gun rights movement is actually a pretty good ex- example of citizen action that uh, keeps politicians in line and i would say that's the approach that we should take on some of those other issue areas that you mentioned candace in mount pleasant wisconsin you're on the so dan show uh
7: yes congrats dan great So you have your own show I kind of agree with Sean. I, all this stuff makes me nervous as well. and um, I was watching on Twitter, and it was weird that they were hiring crisis actors for Virginia. and um, a couple times yesterday, I saw that there were a few provocateurs who started to start out violence, but luckily, you know, the people kicked them out. Yes. and um, you know, so I was very impressed with that. I was very relieved that everything went off because I think the left was trying to make something happen and it
8: didn't.
3: Thanks for the call, Candace. I agree with you. As I said at the outset, turns out law-abiding gun owners are law-abiding, and they sort of demand that other people be law-abiding. This is the Dan Proft Show. And I don't give
6: a damn a bad
0: reputation. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
3: to the Dan Prof. Show. Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, Southern District of New York. Much in the news these past uh, many months. He's also contributing to our National Review and author of Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. He joins us now. Andy, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. So uh, you wrote a piece uh, in advance of this momentous day about uh, impeachment generally. And I thought, uh, as usual, a salient point If this was serious, if this case was substantial, then you wouldn't have the need or the time for the sort of gamesmanship and showmanship that uh, House and Senate Democrats have engaged in.
4: Yeah, Dan, I think that's right. I mean, you know, you grope for a long time with how best to explain this to people. And that's part of the problem, right? If we had a real impeachable offense, you'd be able to explain it to someone in two seconds. But the Democrats couldn't even settle on what their theory was for what Trump did. They kind of um, careened from, you know, bribery to extortion to campaign finance to quid pro quo. And then they finally settled on abuse of power, which is a pretty amorphous and, and vague standard. But I think that all goes to the point that think about how different this would look if you really had an impeachable offense, which is to say if you really had something that had so convinced the public that the president needs to be removed, that it would have put political pressure on two thirds of the Senate to
1: oust him. You
4: know, something like, for example, if Bob Mueller had actually proved that Trump was an agent of the Kremlin, then I think we wouldn't even be starting a trial today. I don't think he would have been able to survive that. So, you know, I I think it's helpful to think about how different this would look if we were actually dealing with something that everybody could agree was
3: impeachable. Chief Justice John Roberts presides over this trial. Where is he going to be material in the trial?
4: I think quite possibly not at all. It sounds like a very important position to be presiding over the impeachment trial, but in point of fact, it's probably more ornamental and substantive. And what I mean by that is the Constitution makes the Senate wholly in charge of impeachment. And the only reason the chief justice presides is because the normal presiding officer over the Senate is the vice president. But the framers understood that it would be unseemly to have the vice president preside over a presidential impeachment when the vice president would become president if the president was removed. They tried to solve that problem by having the chief justice of the United States be the presiding officer. But his basic job is to keep the trains moving on time and to enforce the regulations that the Senate imposes on its proceedings. And if he does anything that the Senate, that a majority of the Senate disagrees with, they can overrule him. So I think given Roberts's personality, which is to try to not make waves, I think it was the Wall Street Journal describes him as an incrementalist, if I'm remembering. I apologize to the journal if I'm attributing it to them and it was somebody else. But I think it was an accurate description of Roberts. He doesn't want the court or himself, I think, to be perceived as making earth shattering decisions because he doesn't think that's the court's role in American life. This is for the Senate to do. And I think uh, he's going to make sure it appears and is in substance the Senate acting, not not Roberts acting.
3: From the uh, briefs that have been filed from uh, both parties, is there uh, anything new that we might anticipate as uh, we move into the arguments from each side? I think there's nothing new. To me, To me, the um, interesting
4: dynamic is two things. One is witnesses and one is the president's position. What you're probably going to hear today, Dan, is a lot of back and forth about new witnesses and new documentary evidence. McConnell wants to defer all that till the end virtually when they're deliberating a verdict. The Democrats obviously want to take the position that if the new witnesses and documents are relevant, which is why they say they're asking for them, they should be part of the narrative that the House impeachment managers are presenting to the Senate, and therefore they should be incorporated into the mix earlier on. They shouldn't wait till the end. I think the Republicans have the votes to say to them, look, if the witnesses were so important, then the House would have made more effort to get them. They didn't, so we're going to defer consideration of this, and you should count yourself lucky that we're deferring consideration of it, because since it wasn't part of the House proceedings, maybe we wouldn't have to consider it at all. So that'll be today's debate. And the other thing I think is interesting in the president's papers is there – it looks to me like there's a division of opinion in the president's camp – about how they want to handle this. I think the lawyers want to take the position that on their face, these articles of impeachment are woefully inadequate constitutionally and they should just be quickly flushed. That is, there should be an acquittal vote without the need to take new evidence. Uh, And that takes up about two thirds of the president's team's trial submission. But then the last third, it looks like they go the other way and the president wants a trial because he wants to be vindicated. So they make an argument on the fact which I think the lawyers, you know, they say there's no quid pro quo and the president didn't do anything wrong. There was no inappropriate action. They give a kind of a skewed version of what Sondland's, Ambassador Sondland's testimony was like, what it was about in the House. I think there it looks like the president wants to be vindicated on the facts of the case. And the problem with that is if you take on the facts, that increases or, or betters the Democrats' case that they need more evidence. That is, if the President wants to put an issue whether he did anything inappropriate or whether there was a quid pro quo, the Democrats are in a stronger position to say, "See, we need these witnesses because they can speak to these issues that the President himself has emphasized.
3: Right, but I mean, it's, yeah, they're sort of arguing the alternative, right? It's it's half legal and half political, and and so it, this seems to me what, what President Trump has said previously, which is, "Sure, let's everybody testimo- testify." Sure, I. Boltons can say whatever he wants, Mulvaney, and then we'll call witnesses and and I'll be completely exonerated and vindicated. You know, I want to spike the football and really punish House Democrats for this quote unquote hoax, as he has said repeatedly. And, you know, I, I wonder if this is so much like let's include this because this is all the... You want to fight, I'll fight. And then you tell your friends, hold me back, hold me back. Right. I I don't really want to fight, but I want to take the public position that I'm not afraid of anything. And I want everything to come out because I'll be exonerated. But I'm happy just to have this thing uh, uh, set set aside based on the House Democrats failing to meet the evidentiary standard.
4: Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of that going on. And I think Trump is shrewd enough to understand that the Democrats don't have any belief or expectation that the president is going to be removed in the impeachment trial, right? That's not their objective because it's not going to happen. There's no way 20 Republicans are going to vote to remove the president. So what are they trying to accomplish here? What this has always been about, I think, is bruising him up, that is, the president for the 2020 election. And from the Democrat standpoint, then, the longer this goes on, the better it is for them. Because even if the president isn't going to be impeached, the information that would come out in the trial is not going to cast him in a favorable light. You could say, well, but they're they're putting a lot of risk on, say, Biden, because if there are witnesses and the president's going to insist on testimony from one or both of the Bidens, I think the Democrats factored that into the mix when they decided to go down this road and they either decided it won't destroy Biden's candidacy or they're willing to to run that risk for what they perceive as the greater good of a chaotic proceeding that could could bruise Trump up. So I think that's their calculation. And McConnell sees this, too. And McConnell, I think, for that reason, is putting the pedal to the metal here and is trying to get this thing over with uh, ASAP.
3: Yeah. Leave the Democrats boxing, Right. Never get into the ring. He is Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, Southern District of New York, contributing editor to uh, National Review, and uh, author of the New York Times bestseller "Ball of Collusion: The Plot to Rig an Election, Destroy a Presidency." Andy, thanks for joining us.
8: Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. And this uh, development, uh, important to note, day after we uh, observe Martin Luther King Day, honoring a great black American patriot. Our armed services are going to honor another great American black patriot. The U.S. Navy will name its next aircraft carrier after Messman Third Class Doris Dory Miller, who was serving on the battleship West Virginia sorting laundry when Japanese planes bombed and torpedoed his ship on December 7th of 1941 in Pearl Harbor. Ordered topside to evacuate the captain, who lay mortally wounded, Miller discovered an unmanned 50 caliber Browning anti-aircraft machine gun and fired at the attacking aircraft. He also assisted in getting some of the wounded to safety. Now, again, consider that at the time, African-Americans weren't even allowed to fire lethal weapons. In fact, they couldn't serve in any other capacity except in the mess. Ultimately, Dory Miller was awarded the Navy Cross that was... Uh, presented to him by Admiral Chester Nimitz. He was the first uh, black American to receive that award, and now he is going to be named after an aircraft carrier, or his, his name will emblazon an aircraft carrier, which is normally uh, reserved for the uh, names of presidents or great generals. And uh, it's a deserving honor. It's a deserving honor. And it's. it's I read this uh, development, this piece, and I thought, well, why, again, is the left so uninterested in extolling the achievements and resilience of black Americans? Why so obsessed with uh, hating on America? And this is the conversation we've been having about the 1619 project in this show. And I've been having for, uh, well, ever since the 1619 uh, project was promulgated by the New York Times, well, before I had this show on my morning show that I do in Chicago, though, certainly. Why, Why won't they... Tell the complete history of black Americans. Remember that editorial from the Tuskegee Airmen, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, I believe he was Lieutenant Colonel, appeared July 4th of last year. And he talked about uh, uh, his service to our country, his birthday, also July 4th. And so he talked about sharing a birthday with this nation. And he said, my country wasn't perfect when I served and it's not perfect now. But I was proud to serve then, and I would be proud to serve now. Why isn't that patriotic impulse, as exhibited by Martin Luther King during the Civil Rights Movement, as evidenced by Lieutenant Colonel Stewart in his op-ed on the occasion of uh, Our Nation's Birthday last year, as exhibited by Messman Third Class Dory Miller uh, during the attack at Pearl Harbor, why isn't that part of the history that certain leftist academics want to tell? For more on this and perhaps an answer to that question, we're pleased to be joined by Peter Kersenau, who is an attorney and member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, who uh, wrote recently on the occasion of Martin Luther King Day about the 1619 project uh, that is being advanced by The New York Times and advanced into classrooms around the country, including in Chicago, which I know pretty well. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me on, Don.
3: Why so resistant to to elevate stories about uh, black American heroes from the past or present, do you think?
2: I think it's in large part because it confounds the narrative that the left would like to promulgate in order to obtain the objective of, I I think, um, having their vision realized, their vision for America realized. Uh, And that's not, I think, too far-fetched a statement to make when you look at the fact that after 30 to 35 years of teaching history in K-12 through 12 in college, that pretty much patterns itself after the Howard Zinn version of history. We now find ourselves with millennials, who 70% of whom think communism is not such a bad idea. Um, and I think the reason why the narrative such as that contained in the 1619 Project is, um, has been created and distributed through to schools and their curricula is to accomplish the objective of delegitimizing the United States of America, its founding, its foundational documents, and any of the founding fathers, so that if the country is not worth preserving, if it's so flawed from its incipiency that it uh, you know, really can't be rehabilitated, then that would justify tearing out the foundational elements of the country, root and branch, and imposing the leftist vision of what America should be. It would make that much easier. It's not going to happen wholesale. It's going to happen incrementally, as, as we've seen. So the 1619 Project is, I think, there's some laudable elements to it. And I try to be as objective as possible, and this is just the first of several... Um, articles I'll be writing on it, but I tried to be as objective as we possibly could, and cited a number of prominent historians who know this stuff inside out. And I want to uh, I want to pick
3: I want to pick up right there. Uh, we've got to take a break, but I want to pick up on uh, your review of the academic reaction to the 1619 Project, as well as some of the foundations of the arguments they're making. We're talking to Peter Kersanel, attorney member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. We'll be back with more of Mr. Kersanel right after this.
0: fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is The Dan Prof. Show.
3: Welcome back to The Dan Prof. Show. We're talking to Peter now. He's an attorney and member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. And we were talking about this piece that he penned on the 1619 Project. And just to reset the table for those who may be coming to awareness of this effort uh, uh, a little bit later in the game than some of us, uh, this is uh, New York Times uh, and a bunch of left-wing academics who are arguing that the real founding date of our nation is not 1776, founding year. It's 1619, the date that the first African slave arrived in northern Virginia and uh, that is the frame through which these academics argue America should be viewed uh, and, uh, and it, it's it's sort of a remarkable argument they make in part as a scholars uh, a number of scholars have pointed out and interestingly sort of across the political spectrum and in, including uh, uh, Gordon Wood at, uh, at who is a professor of, uh, emeritus of history at Brown uh, who's uh, socialist but anyway um, he, uh, they, 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 they make this argument of, uh, focused on slavery, of course, and in the dissertations that were compiled and published by the New York Times, there's no treatment of the Civil War. How do you talk about the history of slavery in America and not include a discussion of the Civil War?
2: Yeah, I think the, the frame for which or the lens through this is viewed is one that the left assumes that everything about America, not everything, I mean, I don't want to say that it's completely distorted, but so much of it is is distorted, such as the fact that they maintain that not only is the true founding of America in 1619, as opposed to, say, um, when, uh, you know, the colonies declared their independence or when, you know, Plymouth Rock or any any other seminal event, they maintain that. In fact, the Declaration of Independence uh, was something designed to preserve slavery, that almost everything about America was an effort to uh, enshrine slavery as a feature, an institution of America. And that's just fundamentally wrong. But much of the 1619 Project uh, minimizes. Uh, The influence and the contributions of white Americans and romanticizes and uh, distorts, overemphasizes the contribution of black Americans. Now, that's just kind of the inverse, as I say in my my piece on NRO of what texts used to do, say, in the early 60s, 50s, 40s, where they ignored the contributions and achievements of blacks, such as uh, Messman Miller, who is being uh, recognized uh, with the uh, aircraft carrier. It's the obverse of that. I mean, uh, you know, look, history is history. It should be factual. It should be accurate because it's important to understand your history so you have a, um, a proper understanding of our place in the world, our individual citizens place within the political community and how the United States was meant to operate and the freedoms that we enjoy but when you distort these kinds of things it could lead to unintended consequences but in this case I think the consequences are clearly intended the 1619 project has a narrative that it wants to uh, impress upon everybody but given that it's going to be in school curricula, especially on uh, young kids I think that's going to be toxic. I we'll, we'll wait to see what the next essays look like, but so far they uh, don't present a I think an honest picture of the foundation of the country and slavery in general.
3: Well, I mean, one of the things uh, and this is um, this is consistent with sort of the 1619 project perspective. Michael Harriet uh, at the wrote a piece in response to your piece that was not too charitable as you can imagine. Uh, One of the things he says, though, this idea that uh, all men are created equal and that the founding fathers risked their lives for liberty, those things are that, that those are incomplete thoughts because all men are created equal and the founding fathers risked their lives for liberty. That was only applicable to white men.
2: Right. And, you know, human beings are complex. And to expect that something like the institution of slavery would disappear overnight, I think, is, we'd like it, you know, it'd be great in a great, uh, you know, perfect society, perfect world, but that kind of thing is not going to happen. And you can portray the founding fathers and the founding accurately without saying that the essence of America is racism, that racism is in the very DNA of America. If it's in the DNA, it can never be removed that slavery is the foundational, um, is the springboard that resulted in the United States of America. Uh, Those kinds of things are, not only are they false or, in many cases, at the bare minimum, misleading, they, uh, as I said at the outset, they give, I think, sustenance to the idea that the America that we know is not worth preserving, and therefore... Whatever vision that the New York Times and the leftists who are, you know, running the project want for America is the one that eventually will prevail. Uh, there are a lot of fa- uh, purported factual elements in the 1619 project which are just flat out wrong, and that's and that's, not, and not that's why
3: yeah, and that's why it's been criticized by historians, like I said, across the political spectrum, uh, uh, including a letter by five historians to the New York Times pointing out some of the historical inaccuracies. But of course, the New York Times responded. Basically saying, uh, we don't, we do, we disagree. You know, we politely disagree, and we're not changing what we put out. Um, I want to go back to Harriet too, because I think he sort of captures the spirit of the 1619 Project in this piece The theroot.com. He writes to insist that students should learn about the insignificant portions of white people who fought for black equality, but not the overwhelming amount of Americans uh, fought against our freedom of white Americans and didn't give a blank about liberty and justice for all. Is not just malpractice; it's erasure. It's evil. See, to me, it seems like uh, this is a a good example of what the 1619 Project does, which is just it's got tunnel vision and it just won't contemplate anything other than white people acting terribly Uh, rather than uh, saying, yes, white people acted terribly. And there's no let's have a full discussion on slavery. Let's have a full discussion on Jim Crow. Um, But but again, why won't you have a discussion that also includes the history of black Americans as resilient uh, the history of black Americans achievement so that if if what you say otherwise normally in this context is if you can't see it, you can't be it. Well, then why don't you want to show young black brown white kids about uh, the achievements that uh, were made by black Americans, the resilience of black Americans when they were discriminated against by law, when they were enslaved? Why won't you show them that? Why? Why can't we talk about that? Why can't we have you know, the holistic conversation about American history. I want to pick up right there. Uh, we've got to take a break, but I want to pick up. We'll be back with more of Mr. Personnel right after this.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof. Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Peter Kersenow, an attorney and a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. And, you know, sometimes uh, regular folk have just a better handle on these matters of race relations, uh, the matters of what's important versus what isn't, focusing on the productive, not the pedantic. And let me give you an example of what I mean. This is Chuck Smith, Virginia resident. African-American gentlemen at the Richmond Second Amendment rally on Monday.
6: They want to liken this to Charlottesville, and they want to anticipate crime and violence. But these are peaceful people who come come around with their weapons, and they're showing up here to send one message, and that is a message of unity. This government thinks this is just white people, just uh, a few black people. There There are people here who are united from the hills, from the mountains, from the valleys, and the message is one message, and that is that we want the Second Amendment to remain intact.
3: And I want to contrast uh, the message from Mr. Smith there uh, to this uh, piece that I had referenced previously, TheRoot.com by Michael Harriet.
2: Yeah, those are good points, Dan. You know, it doesn't foster... The liberal, progressive, woke narrative of the United States being a flawed enterprise from the very outset, and that white people are especially flawed for whatever reason. Uh, this individual, Harriet, when he wrote the piece, took particular aim at me. Yes, uh, on a number of occasions, saying that, "Well, this is the way white people write. This is the way white people think." You know, he said I was writing whitely. Ah, uh, the poor guy. All he had to do was scroll down. If you didn't know who I was, to the bottom of the piece, and there was a photo of me. Guess what? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a white guy. I'm a Surpri- black guy. Surprise! Uh, but, but yeah, and and you know, I know that uh, I I was not aware of his piece. I was preparing for a trial, and then I started getting a bunch of emails and phone calls and uh, things like that. And I thought it was just hilarious because I mean, look, uh, there's a serious aspect to it to, and that is that he presumed, based on the text of what I had written, that, of course, I must be right, and, you know, black people are not permitted to think in this fashion, that because of the woke cancel culture, you're permitted to think only a certain way, you're not allowed to stray from the progressive plantation, and if you write in anything that might even be perceived as remotely conservative, quote-unquote, then you're a traitor to the race, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you know, it's, uh, I've said before, that uh, you know, we accept the premise that if someone says all black people look alike, that that is racist. Well, the presumption that all people, black people, think alike, or hmm. must be, or are obligated hmm. to think alike, what do we call that? And yeah. which is worse? Yeah. Uh, so the fact that you, they try to put you in these lanes, these straitjackets, I think are one of the more troublesome aspects of the 1619 Project. They would like young people, black, white, it doesn't matter who you are. They want young people to think a certain way about America. It's a toxic way of approaching America. It's a way of saying America is not what we all know it to be, a flawed but the greatest nation in the history of the world. And that human beings are human beings, whether white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever you may be, and you're not assigned a certain set of values or thought processes merely on the basis of race.
3: He is Peter Kersenau, attorney, member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. I'll tweet out at Dan Prof show his piece, History According to the 1619 Project. Peter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks very much, Dan.
0: Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof show.
9: You are fake news.
0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome to the Dan Prof Show. President Trump finds himself in Davos for the World Economic Forum. And he uh, spoke this morning, uh, talked a lot about, talked nothing about impeachment, talked a lot about the economy, including the blue-collar boom that has occurred during his presidency.
6: This is a blue-collar
2: boom. Since my election, the net worth of the bottom half of wage earners has increased by plus 47 percent, three times faster than the increase for the top 1 percent. Real median household income is at the highest level ever recorded. The American dream is back bigger, better and stronger than ever before. No one is benefiting more than America's middle class.
3: And uh, he talked about the trade deals, of course. He talked about America moving to energy independence. So we're not reliant on hostile nations like, oh, I don't know, say Iran. Uh, And then, of course, uh, the question about uh, the environment. And uh, he was asked if he had a message for young Greta, who is also at Davos, and uh, she is. Oh yeah, we, yeah. We've we've got a copy of her speech. The New York Times was ge- generous enough to print it. We'll get to what she had to say. Here's what Trump had to say.
6: He said, you have a message for Greta Thunberg? What we're doing—the one trillion trees together with lots of other people and lots of other countries I'm a very big believer in the environment." We right now are doing extremely well in the United States, but what I want is the cleanest water, the cleanest air, and that's what we're going to have,
3: and that's what we have right now. And uh, Greta's response is going to be 10 minutes of shame on you, so you can look forward to that. I mean, actually, it's even more insulting than that. Uh, From her speech, our house is on fire. Your inaction is fueling the flames by the hour. We are still telling you to panic and to act as if you loved your children above all else. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Presumptuous. Hey, hey, why don't you act like you like your kids? You're grounded. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jim Urio, CNBC contributor. Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
9: Thanks for having me.
3: Uh, well, let's start with uh, what Trump had to say about uh, the blue-collar boom and uh, the data point that he relayed to support his case.
9: It, I mean, it's true. I mean, every study I've seen says that the the uh, wage increases have been at the lower end. Um you know, something that amazes me about, about this as well, too, is that all the economist friends that I have, we, we talk about wages have stagnated at the lower end for a, a number of years. And to put something in perspective that they never consider, about service jobs, cash jobs, just in the restaurant industry itself, in 1970, $42 billion a year was spent in the restaurant industry. Last year, almost $900 billion was spent in the restaurant industry. My point here is that— How much, of that, are,
3: to, how much of that went to brands? Half, of it, goes to Brandt, half, half of it went to brands. Half of it You know year. they're going to
9: talk about restaurants. <laughs> at some point in time so we might as well get it out of the way. It's France of But this is actually a valid point. Is that what I'm saying is there's been this huge increase in the number of cash-paying jobs. And I'm not suggesting for one second that anyone's going to stay off the rolls and not be counted, but just let's assume that maybe maybe that is happening and maybe wages in the service industry have been growing all along, and now you know other types of low-end wages are growing as well too. So to, I guess to put a fine point on it is that what Donald Trump says is absolutely correct. We are in the midst of a boom, and it's a boom being felt disproportionately by the lower end. What could be better?
3: And in addition to that of course uh, Amy mentioned one of the thematics today is uh, climate change and you're going to hear from young Greta I gave you a snippet of what she's going to have to say and uh, you know I I mean for forgetting Greta for a second if we could just the the how corporate america gets buffaloed into these Hysterics. I mean, it's one thing to be concerned about it and to be good stewards of resources and all of those things to be efficient with uh, uh, the, the 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 gifts that God has bestowed upon the planet. It's another thing to be forever calling for end days, and I just don't understand why so many C, C-suite executives genuflect before this hysteria.
9: Well, I think because if you if you criticize a fifteen-year-old girl, then all of a sudden you look terrible and i think they're scared to death of doing that how about a mem- how the, about members
3: the, of congress that that behave like 15 year old girls
9: same that's what I'm- that's what they, I mean. They can't. That's when Donald Trump came out and criticized her. He was viewed as the devil. So the the point here is that she's not just talking about climate change. She's talking about the evils of capitalism yes. and how socialism should replace capitalism. So you have to understand that that's the theme behind this whole thing. Now, one thing that I will give her is that I believe that first stage capitalism and even libertarianism, um, it, it kind of presupposes an almost inexhaustible natural resources and climate. Um, I don't think that second stage Capitalism has to do that at all. I think that companies should uh, care about their uh, level of pollution and have to make it right, regardless of what it is. And if products become a little more expensive because of that, I'm fine with it. But the ditch system and institute socialism, which has been an environmental disaster, the only good thing about the environment that socialism ever does, it eliminates the rat population in major urban areas. You get that joke, by the way? They become <laughs> food. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. So that I mean, that's the only thing that it possibly does. Other than that, socialism is an environmental disaster.
3: Well, here's uh, the uh, uh, 2020 version of You Didn't Build That. Oh, AOC saying, you didn't make those widgets. You sat on a couch while thousands of people were paid modern-day slave wages, and in some cases, real modern-day slavery. You made that money off the backs of undocumented people.
9: I, I, I don't, what, is he, what are you even supposed to say to that? That's, I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. I was most...
3: hoping you'd have something.
9: Right no, I got nothing except that it's absolute nonsense. It's ridiculous when the the only way that they can further their agenda is to try to convince people that these are the worst of times. Now, this is a really tall order considering these may very well be the best of times. Um, You you know, when we have – you look at things that the middle and lower class have – compared to, you know, 100 years ago. I, always, I argue now that if someone makes, you know, let's say, $100,000 a year, they are factually and on a relative basis more wealthy than John D. Rockefeller. Just the only way you're supposed to measure money is by what it can buy. That's the only equation. And think of what it can buy in terms of health care, in terms of entertainment, in terms of communication. Um, it, you know, it's just, it's a, it just blows it away. So you, they can say all they want. That things are absolutely heading south, but they're just wrong. And you, you know it's not even debatable.
3: Well, I, I just have to say before I, I get to tariffs, uh, it's pretty impressive range to go from hot tub time machine to paraphrasing Dickens. So Thank congratulations. You. That, was, Thank uh, you very that much. was really something. <laughs> that wide range. Uh, I want to get to uh, tariffs. Um, this is a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, by the Wall Street Journal Ed Board talking about two new studies, economists at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Princeton, and uh, Columbia. Another study by economists at the Federal Reserve, uh, University of Michigan and the Census Bureau, a finding that, look, um, all yes, uh, you got these deals done uh, and, yes, you've inflicted damage on China. But the bottom line is it's just an immutable law of economics that uh, tax increases are passed on to the consumer. And that's what's happened with the tariffs that have been imposed. Tax increases have been passed on to American consumers, the average U.S. duty. More than tripling from 1.6 to 5.4 percent. Foreign firms generally did not cut prices to compensate. Instead, approximately 100 percent of these import taxes have been passed on to U.S. importers and consumers, with uh, the exception being steel imports. Um, but uh, even that is sort of a, a, a murky matter. So, you know, it's, it's, it's it, the, the growth and the good, the best of times, as you're describing, it's not because of the tariffs, it's in spite of them.
9: There's no question about that, and I do think the Federal Reserve made money easier because of the tariffs. Tariffs are a bad thing, and tariffs are anti-free trade. So I think we've talked about this before too. You know, the the real critical people of Donald Trump and of Larry Kudlow are like, well, how can you call them free traders if they've instituted tariffs? If the tariffs they believe are a means to an end, are they they're a tool in this? war, skirmish, whatever you want to call it with China, and at the end of the day, everyone's going to drop their tariffs and and declare free trade, then they were worth it. I mean, this whole, this trade war scared me from the beginning, because I always thought that China has far less to lose, because they don't have to run for re-election, and we do here. I think that the best possible scenario has happened, where it doesn't seem like it's affected us too bad. Just, I was just going over crude demand with um, you know a crude trader last night, they were saying they really couldn't find any blips in demand from from the trade war globally, and and I think that that's a great thing, particularly if it leads to where we want to be. But tariffs, good? No, tariffs are awful, and they will definitely you know reverberate through the consumer.
3: He is Jim Urio. He is a CNBC contributor and also, I must say, the owner of Brandt's. According to Jim, has the best burger in the Western Hemisphere. Not just according to Jim. According to other people, too. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> according to all the Yelp reviews. Jim Urio, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rapp. We don't have
0: enough to eat. shoe
8: the children with no shoes on their feet.
0: Seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show and uh, this uh, video that's gone viral of former NBA star delante West. Played with a bunch of NBA teams, including the Cavs, including in the LeBron era with the Cavs, uh, him being beaten up on the street. And this comes after stories, including last fall, of uh, Delonte West being spotted living on a Cleveland area corner. It was reported that Delonte West suffers from mental illness and a bad drug addiction to pills uh, in the photo that was published on this blog back in the fall of last year. He's holding a a blunt of weed in his hands, apparently homeless. His agent telling TMZ that he has a support network around him, but he needs more help. I mean, this is a guy who made more than $60 million in his career in the NBA, and now he's homeless. Uh, Also during his career, he was sort of noted to be one of the bigger marijuana smokers in the NBA. And of course, this is something that's if not promoted, certainly accepted. He was arrested for marijuana possession back a decade or so ago while he was still in the league. He was also arrested on gun possession charges uh, and so forth. So he had some run ins. But just going back to this whole issue of him being a heavy marijuana smoker and particularly against the backdrop of the number of states that are continuing sort of slowly and methodically to legalize marijuana, as my home state of Illinois did, effective January 1 of this year. This is going to be the great savior for state budgets, right? Uh, Let people smoke because it's no big deal. In point of fact, uh, some even more specious arguments by Craven politicians suggest that there are health benefits to smoking marijuana. Well, I go back to a piece uh, written in the Wall Street Journal a year ago by Dr. Peter Bach, who is a pulmonary physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. His piece, if weed is medicine, so is Budweiser. And this is coming from a supporter of legalizing marijuana. He writes Legalize marijuana, but don't pretend it's therapeutic. He, as he points out, number 10 states, uh, now a dozen states that have legalized recreational marijuana use, another eight looking to do so, and in, in, in one of them being Illinois, which did it last year, took effect, as I said, January 1. He goes on to say, look, actual medicines have research behind them, enumerating their benefits, characterizing their harms, ensuring the former supersedes the latter. Marijuana doesn't. It's a toxin, not a medicine. It impairs judgment and driving ability. It increases the risk of psychosis and schizophrenia. Consider that against the backdrop of Delonte West and the assertions being made about his being afflicted with some sort of mental illness. Mm. Claims that marijuana relieves pain may be true, but the clinical studies that have been done compare it with a placebo, not even a pain reliever like ibuprofen. That's not the type of rigorous evaluation we pursue for medications. Uh, He goes on to say that in writing medical marijuana laws, state lawmakers and initiative authors have gone well beyond pain and nausea control, lauding the plant as effective treatment for a long list of conditions, including hepatitis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. Beyond the lack of data, what these conditions have in common isn't biology, but modern medicine's failure to treat them satisfactorily. Heartbreaking as that is, marijuana isn't the answer. And this nicely folds into research that's been done by Alex Berenson, uh, who's a former New York Times reporter, a turned author. He's written this book called Tell Your Children, examining the possible links between marijuana use and mental illness, going back to what Dr. Bach said about the link between marijuana use and the onset of psychosis or, or even psychi- psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. And oh, by the way, Alex Berenson's wife is a psychiatrist in New York responsible for evaluating criminals with mental illness. She says in a piece that he wrote, one of the characteristics they have in common, these criminals that are suffering from some sort of mental illness is they all smoke marijuana. At first, that point of commonality wasn't persuasive to him. By the way, as a journalist, he spent years reporting on the prescription drug industry and he was skeptical that cannabis could be linked to mental illness. But after doing the due diligence on it, um, he became more and more convinced that there's something here. He argues in his book, Tell Your Children, the Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness and Violence, that cannabis can cause both temporary psychosis and chronic psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. The former is the kind of break that sends someone to the hospital for a few hours or a day, while an unlucky minority of users will go on to suffer the permanent impairment of the latter. And because it can cause psychosis, Berenson contends that marijuana use can also be linked to violence, something he claims is underreported and people are embarrassed to talk about. Now, he's uh, not suggesting you smoke a joint, you get schizophrenia. Not suggesting that. He's talking about people that are heavy users. He uh, said in an interview, uh, no one disputes that occasional use of marijuana by people over 25 is generally safe. But when you challenge and dechallenge, administer then withdraw people with THC, you can provoke temporary psychotic episodes, even in healthy people. These episodes are not rare. Hundreds of times a day in the United States, heavy marijuana users are brought to emergency rooms with psychotic symptoms. It's a known phenomenon. So the question is, is there a relationship between these temporary psychotic breaks and permanent psychosis? You would reasonably expect there is, but you need studies. We now have those. So that's a second layer of evidence. People ask which way the causation runs. We now have studies that show people who don't have pre-existing symptoms of psychosis also have higher rates of schizophrenia and other kinds of psychosis when they use, even in healthy adults. He goes on to say, if you ask me what is the single strongest piece of evidence that marijuana can cause psychosis, it's that healthy people who use marijuana frequently enough that it's notable become paranoid or psychotic after smoking. And all of these people are becoming temporarily psychotic after using THC, doesn't that suggest THC can do bad things to the brain? Yeah. Going back to Dr. Bach, it's a toxin, not a medicine. And so uh, isn't this a conversation we should be having as we're lauding this uh, you know, uh, really nationally, but certainly in particular states that have legalized this as this cash cow for uh, governments and uh, uh, demystify, I mean, you know, sort of uh destigmatizing marijuana use. So when it became legal in Illinois, the day of, you had our lieutenant governor in Illinois, Juliana Stratton, go to one of the medical, or not medical, go to one of the marijuana dispensaries on the north side of Chicago and buy, you know, a bunch of marijuana products. And her argument was, well, it's legal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's legal. But uh, it have politicians looking for ever- New and exciting ways of generating revenue for the uh, for their uh, control and dissemination. Have they fully thought out, researched the potential consequences that are being discussed by a medical professional like. Like Peter Bach over at Sloan Kettering or the uh, journalistic work that's been done by Alex Berenson. I don't think so. And maybe if there's a deeper dig into the situation with Delonte West, hoping that he gets the help he needs, maybe he can be sort of a test case for this. I don't know if there's something there. I don't know if it's a link the way that Alex Berenson speaks of the potential uh, psychological damage, the psychotic uh, impact that heavy marijuana use can have. I don't know if that's the case with Delonte West. But if it is, shouldn't he be a cautionary tale, a warning to others? you know, the same way with we uh, now know uh, with uh, concussions uh, to other professional athletes and then professional athletes, a cautionary tale to the kids that love these professional athletes. The Delonte West case is really, really interesting. It's tragic, it's sad, but it's also potentially very interesting and could have a real benefit to the conversation if we can move beyond ignoring some of, the symptoms that demand the questions that people like Alex Berenson have been asking. This is The Dan Proft
6: Show.
0: You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
8: Welcome
3: back to the Dan Prof Show, and we've got another Project Veritas undercover video of another Bernie staffer. That's Gulag Bernie to you. This staffer's name is Martin Weisgerber, and he's a field organizer in South Carolina for Comrade Bernie. And uh, here's some of what James O'Keefe's group was able to uh, record this gentleman as saying.
5: Back on wood. If Bernie right, if Bernie
1: was to lose, I would like to see yellow vest protests like here, stateside. I'm already on Twitter following numerous groups around the country that are ready to organize yellow vest protests. I
4: mean I'm ready. Let me know. I'm ready to start tearing bricks up and start fighting. Good. I'm not. I'm no no cop, bro. I'm, I'm, I'll straight up. I'll straight up get armed. I want to learn how to shoot and go train. I'm ready for. the all right.
5: I'm telling you. Good stuff.
3: Guillotine the rich. Guillotine the rich. And uh, of course, uh, no discussion of a Bernie Sanders campaign would be complete without uh, reminiscing about the good old days in the Soviet Union.
10: What will help is when we send all the Republicans to the free Can you
4: imagine Mitch McConnell? Oh, God, he wouldn't survive until Lindsey <laughs> Graham. I only
9: learned
4: this. In college, when I started studying the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union was not horrible. No, it wasn't. I mean, for women's rights, the Soviet Union is, I think, the most progressive
9: place to date in the world. Racial rights, too. Yeah.
3: Sure, everybody focuses on the negative in the Soviet Union, like the 60 million souls that were disappeared over the Soviet Union's existence. But, uh, you know, why bother with Solson Heinson when you have Bernie and Jane Sanders For more on this, as well as impeachment, we're pleased to be joined by Conrad Black, former newspaper publisher, financier, historian, commentator, columnist, member of the British House of Lords as Lord Black of Cross Harbor. And uh, he has written about, uh, well, he's written about the impeachment, but he's also written about kingdoms of the wicked. And since the Soviet Union has been invoked, he's an ideal person to comment on some of those comments. Mr. Black, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it.
10: Well, thanks
3: for having me on. So um, I, I understand uh, these are just kids, but, um, but uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and Jane Sanders uh, honeymooning in the Soviet Union were uh, extolling the virtues of that totalitarian regime uh, 30 years ago, you know, when he was at the tender age of 50 or so. And uh, it, it is a bit disturbing the uh, number of incidents of, talking about gulags, the progressive nature of the Soviet Union, and this is against the backdrop of a country where half of the people under the age of 38 say they prefer to live in a socialist country.
10: Yes. Look, I I haven't been an ardent and assiduous student of Bernie Sanders. I I found, by the way, in his background a little more startling the fact that he went and served in a Stalinist kibbutz Three years after the 20th Party Congress had denounced Stalin, I mean, a communist is one thing. The Stalinist communist, after Stalin's enormities of, of, of his uh, bloodletting and so forth and treachery had been had been publicly exposed, strikes me as even more surprising. But in, in yeah. fairness, that was a long time ago. I don't know exactly what Senator Sanders' views are now. I, I assume that he. Is sincere in believing in free elections, which doesn't make him a very good communist. But, <laughs> but there, there's no doubt it, it, it is a movement that he's leading that is a catchment for a great many elements that are uh, that are somewhat totalitarian in nature.
3: Yeah, and uh, this. Uh, I, mean, I I, I think
10: I think he's uh, you know I think he's an outlier. I, I, I think he's not going to get anywhere. But, and but you, you know you do find, uh, and I remember relatively venerable, the worst of the Vietnam demonstrations in that era, that uh, there was an old Marxist uh, political scientist named Herbert Marcuse, and all these young people who were writing in universities were swooning at his feet the way Ocasio is now with Sanders. There's a certain attraction of an old Marxist to young people who are um, uh, politically aroused, but don't know anything. They have no experience. I mean, I, it's distasteful, but I, I wouldn't see it as too alarming. In a country of 330 million people, you're going to get you're going to get some that are that
3: have really stupid and and unacceptable views. Uh, Well, yeah, if uh, AOC and some of her ilk knew knew of the Frankfurt School and who Marcuse was, that perhaps they would have similar affinity. But of course, he's not a presidential candidate, so that makes him less Mm -hmm. useful in real time. Uh, When we come back, I want to pick up your reviews on impeachment and how you think this should proceed as uh, we're at the end of day one of the trial of the century. We're talking to Conrad Black, former newspaper publisher, financier, historian. And we'll be right back with more of Mr. Black.
0: Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof., and this is The Dan Prof. Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. We're speaking with Conrad Black, who's a former newspaper publisher, financier, historian, commentator, columnist, member of the British House of Lords as Lord Black of Cross Harbor. And wanted to get your reaction to uh, what Bill Crystal had to say. About uh, where we find ourselves in terms of the politics of this, and this is endemically a political process. The politics, uh, Bill Kristol, and, and again, he's a never-Trumper, okay. This is still his genuine analysis that so far Nancy Pelosi is winning.
4: You know, I think the big picture is this. Back in August, when the Ukraine story broke, I guess it was early September, and there was the big debate: would Speaker Pelosi go to impeachment? Uh, I was strongly in favor of it, and I had many, many discussions and arguments with people who didn't like Donald Trump, but who thought this is very risky politically. Look what happened under Clinton. There's not majority support for doing it at the time. The numbers were about 40%. Uh, this will be backlash, backfire. Trump's approval will go up. What's amazing, what's most interesting to me, is that that has not happened. The numbers aren't great for the
9: Democrats or for those who are in favor of, but a majority in favor of conviction. Trump's approval stuck at 43%, 70% while witnesses. I think it's interesting that the public is as supportive as it is and I think it's a huge victory for Nancy Pelosi.
3: Uh, is that right? Nancy Pelosi deserves the title, the D.C. press corps gives her master strategist?
10: No, I think it's nonsense. And Bill's an old friend of mine, but he hasn't made any sense. Uh, Trump was nominated some time before that. He's one of these people who is an intelligent a man full of good intentions, you know, quite a convivial person as an individual, but extremely intelligent and accomplished parents, of course. And yet when the word Trump is uttered, a cuckoo bird flies up his head <laughs> and he just starts babbling nonsense. And that's a widespread phenomenon among relatively highbrow, formerly conservative commentators. But no, that is absolute bunk from A to Z and, and his citation of the numbers aren't accurate. Trump's numbers have gone up. These polls that are traditionally supportive of him, like Rasmussen, which were the more accurate ones in the last election, have them at about 50%, and the ones that were hostile, like Quinnipiac and Politico, have them in the low 40s, but above 42, which he said was Trump's average. That is nonsense. There isn't a majority for impeachment. And the matter of witnesses, if the Democrats want to call witnesses, uh, Trump can hold back anything that he wants legitimately on national security grounds, executive privilege. And if they're calling witnesses, then we're going to find out how this the tawdry and contemptible business began. It obviously began by a phony non-whistleblower getting extensive, detailed advice from Schiff's staff, Congressman Schiff, the egregious chairman of the Intelligence Committee. couldn't lie straight in bed. He hasn't uttered a truthful <laughs> word in all the years I've seen him on television. And they guided this whole thing as a partisan attempt to derail the Trump campaign for election and smear the president. And I think Pelosi looks like a complete jackass. She looked at the outset that she was being led by the nose by extremists. And then she went through her little Christmas of snit about not sending these articles to the Senate. I think the whole thing is utterly absurd. I mean, here we are with the president charged with two things that are not, in fact, offenses, and of which there's absolutely no evidence that he did them anyway, although they would have been harmless if he did. So, I mean, legally harmless. So it it, it is just absurd. And how Bill can, who is a highly intelligent man, can talk himself into the view that this is some kind of a victory for Trump's enemies just it disturbs me about what the human mind can do. It's one thing for a bunch of young people who don't know anything to talk about chasing after the rich and uh, saying how uh, what a socialist paradise the Soviet Union was. But for a man of Bill Crystal's intelligence to utter such nonsense is, is worrisome. And it worries me about his mental state, frankly.
3: In your piece at uh, AmericanGreatness, amgreatness.com, about impeachment, you write The farther the administration is seen to enable an airing of the facts, the better and more electorally valuable will be the result. Put some meat on those bones. What should the administration do to be seen as enabling those facts? How far should it go?
10: Well, I, I want to be careful giving tactical advice to the president's extremely competent legal team, some of his members I know. But in my opinion, the, apart from the fact that we start from the fallacy that the impeachment mechanism in the president was never intended for anything like this. It was intended only for what the Constitution said, a high crime or misdemeanor on the scale of bribery or treason, uh, where it was a misuse of that office to seriously disturb and upturn, overturn the Constitution. And, and there's no suggestion of anything like that. So beyond that, it is just what's called in the legal book of practice, frivolous and vexatious litigation. But uh, th- that is the first problem. This isn't, it sh- it isn't an appropriate matter for an impeachment case at all. But having got there, it seems to me that the second fallacy is the president did nothing absolutely nothing actionable at all nothing the farther the Democrats get into it on the assumption that the president will resist and they will be able in the end to say well we would have had him removed if the Republicans in in blind partisan stupidity and locked arms behind him uh, to protect him and the farther the Republicans allow the Democrats to try and drag this out bring in witnesses and get support for their case the weaker the case will be there is no case but he did what he's accused of doing, and what he's accused of doing isn't improper. So you, so, don't, you don't think I mean, that... he wasn't asking, so if I may remind yeah. you this, he,
0: yeah.
10: Your listeners might tend to forget this. It's easy to do. He wasn't asking the president of Ukraine to crucify Joe Biden and his son. He wasn't asking to say that they committed crimes. He was asking for the facts. Well, the president of the United States is quite within his rights to request to know of a former holder of a national office and his family had been abusing the vice presidential office to do improper things. But he didn't say, you tell me that that's what he did. He said, I want to know if that happened.
3: Mm. He is, Conrad.
10: And, and this is somehow transposed into him using the foreign aid giving power of the United States in contravention of vote of aid from the Congress for a political benefit on himself. I mean, if we're going to get to that, then, then really we are back to the reasoning of the Salon era, not the severity of it, but the
3: reasoning of it. You don't think that Senate Republicans should be in any artificial timeline wanting to get this done before, say, the president is scheduled to give his State of the Union address?
10: I think the Democrats have made a catastrophic error getting into this. The longer it goes on and the deeper it gets, the greater the error will be and the more complete will be the absolute debunking of this democratic theory that Trump is crooked uh, all the way down to his toenails.
3: He is Conrad Black, former newspaper publisher, financier, historian, commentator, columnist, member of the British House of Lords as Lord Black of Cross Harbor. Conrad Black, thank you so much for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it.
10: Thank you for inviting me. Take care.
0: You look at me and I begin to melt just like the
6: snow when the ray of sun is felt and I'm, I'm crazy about you baby can't you see i'd be so delighted if you would come with me on the wings of love and above the clouds the only way to see the
0: I'll more be. you listen the more you'll know this is the dan Prof show
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And I think we've moved from a Seinfeld impeachment, you know, about nothing, to a Larry the Cable Guy impeachment trial.
0: <laughs> That's
3: what I mean by that. And I think uh, Mitch McConnell agrees, per the resolution that will be voted up by the Senate today, to limit the House managers to two days of presentation of their argument. The presentation of the case in chief from House managers, you get two days Response, you get two days, and then uh, senators get to write the questions and then, uh, you know, call the thing. I think Mitch McConnell's doing it right. I think he's managing this right. I think he's preventing... The Democrats from Kavanaughing this matter, and that's exactly the right thing to do. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Adam Kennedy, Deputy Assistant to the President, Deputy Director of White House Communications. Adam, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it.
5: Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Is the
3: uh, the White House and uh, the President's legal defense team, do they like the resolution that Mitch McConnell has advanced?
5: Well, we've been prepared for any kind of setup that Mitch McConnell or the Senate may put in place. They still have to vote on it and make sure that it goes through clean today. But at the end of the day, what the President wants is a vote and to be exonerated. We see this as an open and shut case. We think we can have a forceful argument to make. We're going to make it. And we think that the Senate's going to see just how hollow and empty this Democratic impeachment is.
3: The two additions to the legal team and to the, in terms of the actual lawyers, Dershowitz and Starr. Dershowitz explained what his limited role was going to be over the weekend in terms of providing the contextual history of the impeachment clauses in the Constitution. What about Ken Starr? Why the addition of him to join Cipollone and Secular?
5: Well, there's a number of outside members, Jason secular is an outside uh, lawyer who's joined the team. Just a couple others. But Ken Starr, what he provides is a really unique perspective in that he has gone through impeachment proceedings before. They actually had a whole investigation before they even went to the House. He knows what due process looks like. He knows what this sort of situation, how it should have been conducted. And we can see the sharp contrast with how the Democrats actually decided to conduct
3: it. Now, President Trump has said on the, this big question that's the center of the disagreement between Senate Republicans and Democrats' witnesses, he said, you know, I, sure, I went with testify." Sure. Bring your witnesses. And uh, I want everybody to testify and say what they have to say because I want to be completely exonerated. That may not be what actually comes to pass. Is the president going to be all right with no witnesses?
5: I, I think we'll all be okay with that because at the end of the day, a vote is an exoneration. I mean, if we make our case persuasively, if we show how little evidence the Democrats really have, and I think we will, I think we'll do it convincingly, then there is no need for other witnesses. And let's not forget during the Clinton impeachment proceedings, the only witnesses called up during the Senate were ones that were previously questioned. What Democrats are trying to do now is call up a whole raft of people who have never been questioned, who have never been looked into, and essentially for the first time hear what they have to say on this after the investigation is supposed to be concluded.
3: And with respect to the timing of this all, I mean, it seems to me that the president would want to get this done in advance of the State of the Union address beginning of February. So he can say, we've put that nonsense behind us. Now we're going to go forward and here's my policy agenda with respect to issues that actually impact your lives for the rest of my first term and for a prospective second term.
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the the American people and the president's policies have always been the president's focus. It's the Democrats who have decided to turn all of this uh, into impeachment and uh, trying to interfere in our politics.
3: He is Adam Kennedy, deputy assistant to the president, deputy director of White House Communications. Adam, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
5: Thanks so much for having me on. Far from the
0: fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Proft Show.
9: You are fake news.
0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
3: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show and uh, a uh, provocative piece in the Atlantic by a Tufts University poli-sci professor named Eton Hirsch. College-educated voters are ruining American politics. He uh, talks of uh, individuals who read the newspapers and debate, develop, uh, debate you know, the latest developments on the political scene with, on social media or within their, their uh, closely held circle of influence, maybe sign an online petition or throw five bucks in an online donation to a presidential candidate. Uh, they, may, they mainly consume political information as a way of sort of satisfying their own emotional and intellectual needs. a bit of status to say I'm an informed, engaged citizen, but he calls these people political hobbyists. What they are is doing no closer to engaging in politics than watching SportsCenter is to playing football, he writes. And he contrasts that with uh, a woman in Massachusetts, as an example, 63-year-old immigrant from the Dominican Republic, who is the leader of a group called the, uh, the Latino Coalition in her community of Haverhill, Massachusetts, where she organizes other immigrants from uh, Central American countries to basically petition their local units of government for things like immigration reform, federal assistance in affordable housing, uh, you know, putting pressure on the local to put pressure on the, the uh, federal uh, meeting with mayor, the school superintendent, the police department, more Latinos in city jobs and so on and so forth. And he, uh, then goes back to his disdain for the political hobbyists. They're disproportionately college-educated white men. They learn about and talk about big, important things. Their style of politics is a parlor game in which they debate the issues on their abstract merits. Uh, Media commentators and goo-goo groups generally regard this as a cleaner, more evolved, less self-interested version of politics compared with the sort of rough-and-tumble, hand-to-hand political combat that the activist engages in. In reality, political hobbyists have harmed American democracy and would do better by redirecting their political energy towards serving the material and emotional needs of their neighbors. And he goes on to suggest an explanation for this political hobbyism is a lot of college educated white people are comfortable, even though they're predominantly Democrat. They have decent jobs and benefits. They don't want to get their hands dirty. They don't have to worry about conscription. Um, and so, yeah, actually, as much as they uh, express the fear of uh, fear for other groups, they really don't have much fear of themselves. They're more or less satisfied with the status quo because they're comfortable. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Tim Carney, Washington Examiner dot com, where he is a columnist. And he's written about sort of this same demographic, but from a different angle. That's interesting. Uh, Tim is uh also the author of Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. Tim, thanks for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it.
7: Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me.
3: So um, what's your reaction to uh, the uh, chastising of of college-educated white liberals, mainly by this uh, Tufts University professor, suggesting that uh, these hobbyists need to stop being so comfortable and get down onto the street level with the activists to really engage in politics?
7: Well, I do think that it's very important that people actually engage, especially on something that, you know, if they're going to vote on it and they're going to spend their time, you know, uh, expressing their opinions, that actually engaging is important. Whether engaging in national politics is is the right way to do it, I'm not sure what uh, you and I have talked about. I think people need to be political and on the local level is often the – the proper way to do it, but something about kind of a, a liberal elite that is living a very comfortable life, um, and uh, that that is the sort of prevailing political dynamic of our, our commentary, our media, and, and understand that fact really is crucial to understanding why our politics look like they do.
3: Well, and that uh, leads right into this piece that you wrote about uh, liberal elites, secret weapons, sort of the same group we're talking about. Their secret weapon in terms of uh, success in, in life is, uh, you know, to practice conservative values. <laughs> I mean, it's the it's the it's <laughs> yep. sort of the Charles Murray formulation in coming apart. Right. You have uh, liberals, uh, well-to-do liberals, mainly white, well-to-do liberals who don't preach what they practice.
7: No, that's right. And this is actually something I really uh, have struggled to try to convey to a lot of my conservative friends. Um, It's not a valid criticism of the sort of so-called liberal elite, that they're a bunch of decadents. They're not a bunch of swingers who are swearing off marriage and living in polyamorous relationships and neglecting their children. (laughs) If you go to the places that just switched from voting Republican for Congress to voting Democrat and you know um, where where I live now. You're talking about Fairfax County, Virginia, where I'm from, Westchester County, New York, Chicago area, the North Shore, you know, Palatine, those types of places. Um, those people are doing are, are practicing what we conservative Christians are preaching. They're finishing school, getting a job, getting married, having children, and staying involved in their children's lives. In that order and that's what my my examiner column was doing was sort of laying out the data from a study that was done specifically about California so you find these these neighborhoods in California that have about
2: 100%
7: of the children are being raised by two parents who are married and live in the household that's exactly what we're always talking about preaching, and they are practicing out there in some of the most famous liberal elite lands.
3: Uh, we we uh, see maybe this is taking hold, uh, an understanding that that's sort of a model that should be replicated. That's the a recipe for success and independence and, and control of your own destiny. Uh, in, in the Institute for Family Studies recently provided some data, I think it was from 2018, suggesting that we've had sort of the longest period, about a decade, of actually increased intact families uh, parents living I mean the kids living with their parents in this sort of uh, familial model that you're describing
7: no' it's, it's absolutely true, but where where family is uh, crumbling is mostly now in the white working class. In other words mm-hmm. what we've seen in inner cities starting in the 1960s is now happening in a lot of rural America, certainly in Appalachia. So working class communities, people who who graduate high school and don't go to college in it's in that world and they're not going they're not skipping college because they're starting you know, uh, a computer company from their garage, but it's just because that's sort of not what's done in in those parts of the country. That is where you are seeing marriage sort of crumble and erode. And guess what? It's not <laughs> it's not like alternative lifestyles that are turning out fine for everybody. Right? No, these alternative lifestyles are are bad for the women, many of whom are raising children by themselves. They're bad for the men, men especially now in this post-industrial economy, many of whom don't have anybody who actually needs them. Well, no and children, and, the and, no and, job.
3: And, yeah, and as you're talking about this too, I mean, it, this the the, the important one of the important points here is it doesn't matter the race, Latino, black, white. Uh, you see these choices and the disintegration of the family you see the same effects across race and now in some of those poorer white communities of course we've there's been some discussion in the last couple of years and ever since sort of JD Vance's book Hillbilly elegy more of that which is um, life expectancy actually in the wealthiest country the world has ever seen life expectancy going down for certain demographics as all these pathologies are unleashed
7: yep That's exactly right. But so what I want to sort of uh, drive home here is that the people who end up in a bad situation, it's almost always from making individual decisions. But that the key is that in really strong communities, what all the adults do is they make it easier for other adults and for the children to make the right decisions. What are you doing when you're choosing a good school to put your kid in? or when you're saying, oh, I want to make sure my children hang around with these other children, or the reason that I'm going to put them in sports so that they learn these certain virtues. You're making it easier for them to make the right decisions in their lives and a lot of what the struggle is in whether it's in sort of working-class white Appalachian middle America or whether it's in working-class uh, black inner cities et cetera, a lot of what the struggle is is that they don't have and this is what I argued in, in my book that you and I have talked about alienated America the a lot of those communities don't have those institutions the types of things that help drive people towards making better decisions and that one of the complaints I have about the liberal elite is that they're out there sort of pushing national level policies and, and preaching ideologies that are against the traditional family of people getting married and raising their kids in the home. Meanwhile, for their own families, they know that's what's best, but they're, they're preaching against it for everybody else at a very time when the, the family is, is needed, is, is collapsing in the working class.
3: He is Tim Carney. He is the author of Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. It's a book you need to pick up. He's also a senior political columnist for the Washington Examiner, WashingtonExaminer.com. Tim, thanks for joining us on the Dan Proft Show. Appreciate it.
11: Thank you, Dan.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft. The Dan Prof Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So we're through day one of the trial of the century, the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump, and again, uh, Mitch McConnell's posture has been very clear. He's taking this from a Seinfeld impeachment, as many have termed it, you know, an impeachment about nothing, to what I term it uh, in the Senate, the Senate trial, the Larry the Cable Guy impeachment trial.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah, let's get this thing done and move on and get it done in advance of President Trump's Day of the Union address so that there's a clean slate, a uh, page that has been turned. And you can focus the electorate's attention on November and the competing policy agendas between now and November and beyond. Uh, also, of course, uh, the president adding to his legal defense team a number of uh, House Republicans, Jim Jordan, Doug Collins, John Ratcliffe, uh, Elise Stefanik, Lee Zeldin, Mike Johnson, Debbie Lesko, you know, all who uh, were uh Uh, Present and accounted for during the House impeachment proceedings and uh, so are very familiar with uh, all of the witness testimony as well as all of the pronouncements from the House managers for the Democrats uh, during the proceedings in the House. So that makes sense in addition to act as surrogates for the president's uh, defense as well. Makes sense. Jim Jordan, John Ratcliffe, Mark Meadows, Doug Collins, some of the best surrogates the president has had throughout this process. Those are some of the developments. Uh, and again, it's it's worth remembering where we're here, where we're at here, as Jonathan Turley, the George Washington University law professor, said during his testimony in the House, one of the thinnest records to ever go forward on impeachment, one of the thinnest records ever to go forward on impeachment. So just consider that. Keep that in mind when you hear statements like this from Chuck Schumer on Mitch McConnell's desire to use the political power that he has as Senate Majority Leader, the way that Nancy Pelosi used the political power that she had as House Speaker.
1: After reading McConnell's resolution, it's clear McConnell is hell-bent on making it much more difficult to get witnesses and documents and intent on rushing the trial through.
3: Right. It's only okay if you rush the impeachment through, not the trial. Uh, Hawaii Senator Mazie Hirano, thankfully, she'll be silenced soon once the now that the trial has begun, she's got to keep her comments in writing. This is what she said:
6: "It's a so what defense, and so if it's a so what defense, he did it. So what? You have to ask. We have to ask ourselves: Who is the president going to shake down next? Mm.
3: Of course, uh, the articles of impeachment don't include any accusation of shakedown uh, or extortion, which was a word used during the House impeachment proceedings, but not memorialized in writing when it came to the articles of impeachment." So, yeah, uh, you know where that juror is. But again, in a criminal (laughs) proceeding, Maisie Hirano would be dismissed as a juror. This is a political proceeding, not a criminal one. And some of the pronouncements from the quote unquote jurors underscore that. There's one other uh, interesting aspect of this uh, piece by The Wall Street Journal over the weekend about uh, how Trump has enjoyed near just about unanimous GOP support throughout this process, Uh, frankly, Uh, He's even added to the party ranks with Jeff Van Drew from New Jersey coming over to the Republican Party. Uh, But it wasn't always that way. Uh, They recall that as many as 20 House Republicans were open to supporting Trump's impeachment, according to retiring Representative Peter King. But that didn't materialize, uh, obviously. Right. We know there's not a single Republican who defected. And the question is, why? How did he do that? The Wall Street Journal Suggests the unity is a byproduct not only of a White House charm offensive uh, last fall, but also widespread Republican concerns about the fairness of the impeachment process. And even more broadly, the president's personal powers of persuasion and his raw political power over the party, fueled by an intensely loyal base of GOP voters. That's key. And uh, even thinking about this, too, the number of House Republicans who announced they're retiring, which is 26, and not a single one of them broke ranks. And in part, uh, they have uh, Trump has the Democrats to thank Representative Francis Rooney, who's a moderate Republican from the Naples area in Florida. He has said after criticizing Trump for his interactions with Ukraine, he stuck with the president and voted against impeachment because he just believed the Democrats pursued the inquiry the wrong way. They were conducting more of a political process and they wanted to get it all out of the way. There were several people like me who thought it was disturbing, but it didn't rise to the level of impeachment, meaning the phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine. So it's a combination of the naked ambition of Democrats who have been trying to impeach this president since the day he was inaugurated, and, number one, and number two, go back to that phrase, intensely loyal base of GOP voters. Remember, politicians respond to pressure. You always have to keep them in the vice. Even the retiring ones, you know, they have their legacy that they're thinking about without without a doubt. And also just they're sort of standing in the community. They don't want to take heat. They want to ride off into the sunset, many of them. Pressure, pressure, pressure. You want to move an idea, a policy proposal, or stop one, you have got to put politicians in the vice, apply that pressure. And Trump brings a loyal base, a loyal base of voters that can and is doing just that. Let's take a couple of calls. Bob in Buffalo Grove, Illinois, you're on the Dan Prof Show.
5: Oh, thanks for taking
4: uh, my call, uh, Dan. Great talking to you.
3: Thank you. Go ahead.
4: Oh, with regards to this impeachment thing, um, it's just unbelievable the um, the Democrats how they are um, trying to uh, again, uh, like you just said, re- rehash or redo the twenty sixteen election. And I'm just I'm just waiting for this to be uh, over over with. Get let's get on to the twenty twenty reelect him or. If the voters want somebody else, fine, get somebody else. But let's get this over with. But what I fear is uh, if uh, Trump gets reelected, even though um, I think it would be a good news, uh, it's still going to go on. They are still not going to consider him a legitimate pres- president. And we're going to have another four years of this.
3: Well, thanks for the call, Bob. I mean, that's certainly a possibility, you know, one way to prevent that from happening. Uh, Put Kevin McCarthy in as House Speaker. Take back the necessary seats in the House to end Speaker Pelosi's term as Speaker. And then you can put, and and obviously retain the Senate and Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader. And then you can avoid having this be chapter after chapter after chapter, gambit after gambit after gambit gambit of trying to remove this president for office or fixate people's attention on the prospect of doing so. Levi in Goose Island in Chicago, you're on The Dan Prof. Show. It hey, was on. What's going on, guys? Yeah, you know this whole this whole
4: impeachment thing. I think uh, Mitch McConnell is right in the sense that he just needs to rush it through, get this thing over with. I think it's tearing apart the country more than it needs to. Um, you know, the this isn't actually an impeachment. This is just a campaign that they're running to, against Trump. That's really all it boils down to. Uh, I think what needs to happen: this impeachment needs to get rushed through, done. They need they
1: need twenty. Republicans to vote against Trump. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> okay, so what? We finish the impeachment. We go on to the debates. Trump
4: destroys the Democrats in the debates again, just like he destroyed Hillary in those debates. When he said, dude, when he said, because you'd be in jail, that was the start of the revolution right there. When when It wasn't when he went down the escalator to announce his campaign. It was when he said, Hil- yeah, Hillary, that's because you'd be in jail. That's when, like,
3: everything took off. Thanks. Was- Thanks for the call, Levi. I appreciate it. I, I, I like that characterization, too. This isn't an impeachment proceeding. It wasn't an impeachment investigation in the House. It's not even an impeachment trial. This is necessarily, this is just uh, part of the 2020 campaign. I think that's exactly right. you will listen to The Damn Prop Show.
0: To the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. I want to return to the Second Amendment rally in Richmond on Monday, on Martin Luther King Day. Uh, something that uh, AOC said in her uh, infinite wisdom covering a lot of topics at this Blackout for Human Rights fifth annual MLK Now event at which she was interviewed. She uh, took up the issue of uh, uh, those law abiding gun owners rallying for their Second Amendment rights in Virginia, uh, as you might suspect, less than complimentary.
8: Gun rights protests that's right. happening right. down in Richmond
9: right.
8: and on MLK Day. On MLK Day. <laughs> but here's the image that has struck with me the most about that is that when we go out and march for the dignity and the recognition of the lives of people like Freddie Gray Mm -hmm. and Eric Garner, Mm -hmm. the whole place is surrounded by police in riot gear Mm -hmm. without a gun in sight. Mm -hmm. And here are all of these people um, flying Confederate flags with semi-automatic weapons, Mm -hmm. and there's almost no police officers Mm -hmm. at that protest. Mm -hmm. So who are, are in, who or what are our institu- institutions protecting right. from who? Right, right. And that image conveys it all, Got it. conveys it all.
3: Yeah, who are our institutions protecting from whom? It's a great question, uh, not in the way that you thought about it, though, AOC, of course. Uh, first of all, this Confederate flag business, this disgusting caricature of law-abiding gun owners – Uh, many of whom were African-Americans, as we heard from earlier on the show, uh, uh, is uh, is just outrageous. And it just doesn't comport with facts. Number one. Number two, uh, on MLK Day, like they're incredulous that this would occur on MLK Day, as we discussed earlier in the show, MLK gun owner uh, applied for a concealed carry permit in the state of Alabama was denied because of the racist authorities at the time. But applied because he was under constant death threats. He knew he needed protection and in in, in in addition to his security detail. So it's interesting who's standing for the gun rights of MLK uh, and uh, frankly, minorities in violent uh, neighborhoods, in urban centers in the United States today. And who isn't? And then just the, the whole she can't figure out why there's less police presence in a rally of law-abiding gun owners than there is when she and her Antifa and Black Lives Matter friends get together. Golly, I wonder why. Uh, Here's a hint for AOC to this brain teaser that you posed. An armed society is a civil society. Mm. Armed society is a civil society. And uh, there are a lot of folks that are pushing back against politicians around the country, not just in Virginia but also in Virginia, when they move to restrict Second Amendment rights, this sanctuary uh, locality movement, sanctuary county, sanctuary city, you think about it in the context of immigration, well, the development over the last couple of years, particularly in states where you have gun grabbers, as you do in Virginia with Governor Ralph Northam, the move has been to, okay, well, if you can say I'm not going to abide or help federal law enforcement when it comes to enforcing federal immigration law, Chicago, Cook County, the state of Illinois, uh, several other hundred counties around the country, then why can't we, in places like um, uh, Virginia or in central and southern Illinois, it's happening in my home state, why can't we then organize in the same fashion and say, well, this is a sanctuary city or county, whereby we are going to uh, provide for individual Second Amendment rights as enshrined in the the two Supreme Court decisions in the last decade-plus, Heller v. D.C. and McDonald v. City of Chicago. And so we are not going to comply with federal law enforcement when it comes to uh, any endeavors that run afoul of people's individual Second Amendment rights as so determined, in those cases I mentioned by the Supreme Court. What about that? I mean, what's good for the goose essentially is the is the argument, right? When we come back, we're going to talk to Bowen Chow, who covers national security and human trafficking for the Epoch Times, and uh, he is uh, covering this topic, uh, both topics actually, both the rally uh, at uh, uh, the the rally in Richmond on Monday. As well as the sanctuary county movement, Second Amendment sanctuary movement at uh, local level, at the local level in uh, states throughout our country. So uh, stay tuned for more on the Dan Prof show. We'll be joined by Bowen Chow of the Epoch Times.
0: fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof. And this is the Dan Prof Show.
3: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. As advertised, we're now pleased to be joined by Bowen Chow who covers national security and human trafficking for the Epoch Times. Bowen, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
11: Thanks so much for having me, Ben.
3: Well, so uh, you've uh, covered this uh, uh, Second Amendment sanctuary uh, movement, if you will, that's happening around the country, including my uh, home state of Illinois and downstate counties like Effingham. Um, give us your perspective on what you see happening, the dynamic uh, that is afoot uh, with respect to the conver- – and you know, based on the conversations that you've had with some of the uh, the, the, the participants.
11: So there's a growing movement Um among these localities and that they are uh, standing up to the proposed gun control proposals. Uh, especially in the recent months, the, a number of localities has increased. Uh, it's gaining momentum. In Virginia especially, I think the last time I checked, there's uh, at least 90 of the 95 counties have declared themselves Second Amendment sanctuaries And in Illinois, you know, over 70 of the 100 counties have declared similar uh, resolutions in support of Second Amendment rights.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because uh, you think of Illinois, surely, as a blue state. You think of Virginia as a state that's become fairly blue, but uh, Mm -hmm. dominated by certain uh, centers of the state, uh, you know, in terms of what they do in presidential elections, for example. But it it belies that there's real diversity of opinion and diversity of lifestyles uh, in these states. So, so, as you say, 70 percent of Illinois counties and the overwhelming majority of Virginia counties. And and again, we want to make it clear, uh, this is not vigilanteism. This is not uh, this doesn't have the force of law. But these are resolutions saying uh, essentially a message, sending essentially a message to legislators. them know they better be paying attention to protecting individual gun rights or they're going to have a political price to pay.
11: Exactly. So I spoke to one of the local officials in Illinois uh, from Evancombe County and he was telling me, uh, well, it is uh, largely a symbolic message, you know, sending a message to the lawmakers. It's still a pretty strong message, you know, other Second Amendment advocates are telling me that uh, these lawmakers could lose their seats in the next election. movement,
3: Yeah, and it's interesting because um, one of the things that has made the Second Amendment rights movement so powerful, powerful enough that uh, when, for example, President Obama was president and Democrats controlled both chambers of Congress, they didn't move to do anything on gun control, like reauthorize the quote unquote assault weapon, w- weapons ban or some of the other measures that are being advanced at the state level in places like Virginia at present. They didn't do that. Because they know that the gun rights movement sort of crosses the political divide and uh, can visit uh, electoral consequences on Democrats just as well as Republicans.
11: Right. And so uh, all everyone's eyes is on Virginia because the state legislature, you know, for the first time is going to pass the strict gun, gun control proposals. You know, I'll give you some of the measures that are going through the Senate now or being discussed in the Virginia legislature, Mm -hmm. so there's a, there's one bill requiring background checks on all firearms, there's another that limits the handgun purchases to one per month, there's another bill that restores, uh, that allows localities to ban weapons from certain public buildings or public events. And there's also another red flag law that is being discussed in Virginia Senate.
3: Right. And uh, and you it was interesting at the rally, the peaceful rally that was held uh, Monday, that you had uh, some chance of we will not comply and signage to that effect as well. And uh, I think there was sort of more made of that by the Beltway media than really is deserved. Imagine that. Of course, there was. Um, But it was it was people, people peacefully expressing their uh, disagreement with uh, one or more of those proposals coming from Virginia Democrats.
11: Right, I was at the rally with our staff photographer. There was no hints of violence or any, you know, violent incidents. The mood, I would say, was actually kind of upbeat. You know, everyone was very warm, friendly, and welcoming. I didn't feel scared at all attending the rally. And, you know, these people just—they are just law-abiding citizens.
3: Well, and there was uh, some uh, some videos I saw online too on social media where there was uh, an instigator or two, uh, at a time or two that tried to you know advocate for violence or something like that, and was immediately shouted down by the crowd and said uh, you know that there's no place for that here. So there was uh, the, the self policing you would expect from people who are law abiding.
11: Exactly. Now these people feel that these new gun control laws who only punished law-abiding citizens and won't impact criminals. Uh, actually, during the rally, a lot of people were also chanting, north out, you know, referring to Virginia's governor, who has pushed for these uh, gun control bills.
3: Yeah, well, well, you know, one, of, one of the interesting comments from uh, one of the gentlemen who attended the rally that I saw, an African-American gentleman, was basically, boy, it's really something for a guy who dressed in blackface or with a hood to be lecturing uh, African-Americans about uh, about their about civil rights as it pertains to my gun rights. And the the, the guy was basically saying, hey, you know, my right to protect myself is also a civil right. And who is Governor Northam to be substituting himself in my place?
11: Right. And I just want to bring up that uh, in Virginia, Democrats have control of both chambers of the state legislature. So they won the previous November elections. Uh, I think this is the first time in 20 years that the Democrats have uh, full control of the the House and Senate in Virginia, and so they are taking that chance to push for uh, a gun control.
3: Yeah, and uh, well, Northam is term limited, right? So he's going to be gone. Um, obviously, the the it's a different uh, deal with a uh, uh, with the legislature there. But it also, because of the profile of these issues now, it, it, it uh, maybe maybe brings Virginia back in play in the presidential if Second Amendment rights becomes a significant issue that voters uh, are thinking about when they go to the polls.
11: Right. So I spoke to, a few weeks ago, I spoke to a county sheriff from Virginia, from Coppola County, Scott Jenkins, and he was telling me uh, he definitely feels that uh, these Democrats will lose their seat in the next election due to the uh, massive crowds.
3: Well, that will be interesting to watch. He is Bowen Chow. He covers national security and human trafficking for the Epoch Times, and he's covered the issue, he's covered both the rally in Richmond and the issue of the Second Amendment sanctuary movement around the country. Bowen, thanks so much for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it.
11: Thanks so much for having me, Dan.
0: listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show.
3: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. And I just mentioned AOC, End of the World Spice, if you're keeping score at home at the Socialist Spice Girls, or as Nancy Pelosi calls them, the squad. I come up with my own monikers. AOC at this Martin Luther King Day event talking about a range of issues from the Richmond Second Amendment rally to taking uh, money from the wealthy and and power from the wealthy, too, of course. Uh, Also, (laughs) this characterization of her party. Listen to this. AOC on the Democrat Socialist Party.
8: We don't have a left party Mm. in the United States. Mm. The Democratic Party is not a left party. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, The Democratic Party is a center or Center Conservative Party? Center
3: Conservative Party. The three candidates that uh, comprise a a supermajority of the electoral support right now for the Democrat Socialist Party, a self-avowed socialist, arguably communist, Gulag Bernie, Elizabeth Warren, who wants to nationalize just about everything, and Joe Biden, who was one of the most liberal members of the Senate when he was there and is trying to play catch-up on a range of issues... At present, uh, including agreeing with Bernie Sanders recently that fossil fuel company executives, CEOs could potentially be imprisoned for just being the CEO of a fossil fuel company, you know, with the predicate of whatever whatever damage to the environment that Bernie and Biden and those like them would cook up. It's remarkable. And I don't know who's even more quotable anymore between Biden and AOC. Biden's uh, pronouncements. uh, and, And again, Democrats really want witnesses. I don't agree with witnesses for impeachment. I think this should be done expeditiously. McConnell is doing the right thing. But boy, oh boy, could you imagine Joe Biden under cross-examination, even if the questions were written. Uh, Joe Biden, fresh off the jailing fossil fuel company CEOs, has a few more gems. Fresh off the coal miners, if you can go 3,000 feet underground, then you can learn how to code. That's your future. Not terribly interested in your job. If you like your job, you can keep it. No, not exactly any more than your health care. Joe Biden calling video game developers creeps, calling them arrogant because they teach they make games to to teach people how to kill. Okay, Uh, way to go, grandpa or great grandpa. Joe also on The position that his administration would take, which is to fire ICE agents who arrest and deport illegal immigrants unless they are guilty of felony crimes. So it doesn't matter. Rule of law, right? Unless you're guilty of felony crimes, you are not going to be deported under a Biden administration. Oh, and by the way, he doesn't count drunk driving as a felony. Well, um, that's. Fascinating. I wonder if MAD would like to respond, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, would like to respond to Joe Biden about that. And it's it's to make such a categorical statement, obviously aggravated drunk driving is currently a felony in most states, probably all states. I don't know, but certainly is in Illinois where I live, aggravated drunk driving. You pile up a number of drunk driving arrests uh, that can... You can turn misdemeanors into felonies. You know how that works? The uh, recidivism issue. Were just remarkable statements with respect to the rule of law. So tell me again how this is a center conservative party. Everything that AOC says about confiscating other people's stuff, everything that Warren and Bernie and Joe are promoting in terms of not only confiscating their stuff, but confiscating them, center conservative
0: party. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Profft Show.
9: You are fake news.